From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. Hi, my name is Michelle Pham, my pronouns are she, her, and reclaiming Asian Pacific Islander history and identity is part of the work I do with the National, Nashville chapter of National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, API Middle Tennessee, and Anti-Aunties. Welcome to Just Conversations. Nashville reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, being filmed in the Grand Reading Room of the Nashville Library. I'm joined here by my colleagues. Hi, I'm Scarlett Hester. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at MTSU, and I teach and research in the areas of critical rhetoric and media studies with an emphasis on critical race, uh, whiteness, and gender. Hi, my name is Robert Fowler. I'm an assistant professor at MTSU. I teach in the aerospace department, and my specialty is a professional pilot uh, concentration. Hi, my name is Terry Vo, and I am the vice chair for API Middle Tennessee, that, which stands for Asian Pacific Islander of Middle Tennessee. Hi, my name is Kit Canlis, board president of Asian Pacific Islanders of Middle Tennessee. My pronouns are she, her. Today we're discussing chapter nine on color of how to be an anti-racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi um, through an Asian Pacific Islander lens. Dr. Kendi defines color colorism as a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to inequities between light people and dark people, supported by racist ideas about light and dark people. In contrast, color anti-racism is a powerful collection of anti-racist policies that lead to equity between light people and dark people, supported by anti-racist ideas about light and dark people. Colorism is most obvious when we examine preferences for particular skin and eye colors, hair textures, and facial features. How do we see these preferences reflected in today's beauty standards? Thanks so much, Michelle. I think that um, you know when we are in a day with so much social media, everything we look at and we see on TV, um, you see, I definitely think growing up, I saw all white like actresses and lighter skinned individuals and never someone that looked like myself. And so I think that um, when they're given more roles um, in society, not only on what we see in TV shows and movies, but in our schools where we you know, interact with in all of our community, um, you see a preference for that. I think growing up, it's like when you hear that blondes have more fun. So you think like, uh, my parents never let me dye my hair. But yeah, like uh, when you're like, well, my hair is dark and different things like that. Um, and then also what I think the Eurocentric view of having a like thinner nose or, you know, um, uh, smaller lips that are not as full or plumped. Um, and I think all of those really um, affect how you see yourself, um, especially when you are young um, and impressionable. And I think it leads into, you know, as you grow into an adult and how you view yourself and others. I think in the Asian community, some of these beauty standards are also focused on Eurocentric beauty standards. I don't know if anyone else here experienced this, but my family always praised me for having the double eyelid. Um, is that something that anyone else here has experienced about the desire for double eyelids or? I know of the eyelid tape 
right? That you can uh, like tape your eyelids to have the, the double eyelid to be more attractive and desirable. Right. Yeah. Um, in Korea, eye, double eyelid surgery is actually very common as, as, a plas as plastic surgery that actually originated after the Korean War when um, a physician was doing this eyelid surgery. And so I think it also shows the connection between colorism and colonialism that pervades our beauty standards. Yeah, and I think when you talk about that, I was living in Japan um, for a few years. And so when I first was going to the um, supermarket and buying different products for washing my face, um, I thought I could read Japanese. So I bought some products and I came home and I was looking, you know, going through the descriptions and I realized I had bought lightning, like skin cream. And so, you know, and then when I went back to the store, I saw there was like a whole shelf that was literally all whitening um, and making your skin lighter. And so I think that happens all the time too. Um, growing up, whenever I was um, with my family and my parents and their friends, uh, we'd be driving in the car and they would be wearing gloves, like full, fully covered when it was like 90 degrees outside and, you know, wearing hats. And I didn't understand, like, you know, when I was younger. And then um, going back to Vietnam too, you realize that, yes, someone who is lighter skinned is seen as more beautiful um, versus someone who um, is darker because uh, they said, um, you know, because they were working outside and in the fields. And, you know, that's someone who um, is not, you know, as um, I think looked upon with as much respect. And, you know, for that, I don't agree with it, but you know, when you're growing up and being a kid, you see all these things. And, and I felt like I had a split because then here living, growing up in um, the States when it's summertime and everyone's going outside and you can tan very easily. And then people are like, oh my gosh. So I felt like I just had like one foot in each side and it was really confusing um, for me. Now, color, colorism as a term was coined by Alice Walker in 1983. In In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, she wrote that black communities, particularly black sisterhoods, could not progress without addressing the question of colorism. And I think that brings to the question, how is colorism also gendered as another dimension to um, the practice of colorism? Yeah, I think that's a really um, great point. So when I think about um, colorism, I'll, I'll speak from my perspective as someone with Filipinx heritage. I think of two terms that come up in our culture a lot, which is mestiza, um, which is a term meaning um, mixed, um, originating from uh, Spain, right? So someone that's mixed with European descent, contrasted with the word that's often used, morena, um, and which is literally translates to somebody with brown skin or, or brown dark features. And, um, you know, I think about um, my growing up in the United States and it wasn't as much of a um, pressure on me, but listening to my mom's experience of growing up in the Philippines, you know, she would tell these stories about how her sister would sleep with a clothespin on her nose to try and make her nose bridge higher. Same thing that Terry said, they would wear like the sleeves and the parasols. And I would always tease my mom, you know, when they would come to the States, I could find them in a crowd because it would, her and her sisters would all be 
carrying around their parasols. And, um, you know, I remember the, the first time I went to the Philippines and, and at the time, you know, my skin color varies greatly depending on the season. And at the time that I went, I've been there, you know, kind of in the, in the, uh, a time whenever I was lighter. And in that experience, it was very odd because I was almost treated like a celebrity, like people kind of automatically assumed my, ge my general experience was that people assumed that I had, you know, a really high paying job or um, that I was someone kind of from this um, upper class. Um, and I remember, you know, the experience of going there when I was darker and my aunt saying to me, you know, oh, you're so beautiful. If you want to do pageants, you know, we can we can do that, but you'll have to be lighter. Like you can't you can't go outside as much. Um, and I, I, I just found that so odd, you know, like me growing up in America, I was very um, conscious of the discrimination against darker skin. And so that's something that I very heavily rebelled against. And I remember going to a makeup counter and, um, you know, again, I was darker complected at the time and I was offered a shade of foundation that was like two or three shades too light. And I, I asked the, the beauty, uh, you know, the, the makeup counter person and, and she just said, oh, you know, Masmaganda, this is more pretty. And she was like trying to show me how to blend it in so that I could have this fair complexion. And, you know, when I think about um, the stories that my mom would tell or my experiences um, as a woman comparing with, you know, my male counterparts, whether it's my cousins or my uncles or hearing my mom's stories about her contrasting experience with her brothers, there really was not the same um, expectation of being light. And I remember, you know, sometimes walking around with my mom and the comment would come up, oh, Miss Tisasha, like, oh, oh, she's, you know, they would call it out as if it was a very good thing. And, um, you know, there's this kind of joke in, in Filipinx culture where it's like, oh, if you're too dark, no one's gonna marry you. So I think a lot of it centers around this kind of, um, hierarchy that's often put around women centered around competition and it becomes, you know, how do I um, make myself uh, fit the male gaze, which in the Philippines is centered around being lighter. Um, you know, I think now there's kind of a resurgence, a movement to um, accept the kind of natural Filipino look, which is, you know, which can tend to be darker complected just by nature of um, you know, the, the geography there, it's very hot. And so there's this whole movement now that's uh, magandang morenex or, you know, beautiful brown skin. And so there's a lot of kind of pressure around these, um, like Terry mentioned, the papaya soap or the whitening skin products to, um, you know, people can make the, the choices, particularly women can make the choices around what beauty products they want, but they're advertising, starting to advertise it in a way where they're not as aggressive in putting down brown skin features. So, yeah. Um, from uh, the male point of view, I, I can't really address, you know, the difference in, in color and how that affects uh, how that affects me as a male um, actually this is kind of new to me I, I never even thought about it I'm uh, half Japanese and I grew up in the United States in a predominantly white community 
so I was, I was a different person. I, there were uh, maybe two or three other Asian, uh, half Asian students in my high school. And I keep hearing you go back to when I was growing up or when I was young. I think that's where it first starts, where this perception of lightness is better than uh, dark uh, complexion uh, starts with when you're young and probably especially around the middle school age where it's um, the most important thing is to be accepted by your peers. And I probably suffered from that quite a bit because again I was one of only three um, Asian students in my high school and um, felt very um, different as a result. Um, didn't help me socially, probably didn't help me academically either because I didn't feel that I could engage with anyone. Um, and there were, there, was, there were bullies in, in school as well, and I'm sure that many of us have encountered these bullies that zero in on your differences. And um, I think because it starts so early, uh, I think the key to maybe changing this is education starting very early, um, maybe even in elementary school, um, where people or kids get exposed to different types of people, different people from different cultures. The more you get exposed to people from different cultures, people who are different from you, I think the more accepting you, you are of their differences. And I think that's key. I think that's probably one of the, and as an educator myself, I feel that education is probably one of the keys to changing this in the future. I completely agree with you. And I think the biggest part, like you said, in education is pushing that, you know, that we are focusing on accentuating, um, you know, the differences and not erasing like the natural beauties. And so when we really discuss it and show that yes, like having curly hair or long hair or short hair are all beautiful. And I think that's so important is that it's really about um, the inclusivity of all differences being accepted versus an either or, like not curly versus straight, but curly and straight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so interesting what you both brought up. I, I think, you know, I wasn't really till later in my teen years where I, I saw a negrita Filipinx person, which is the very indigenous, very, very dark, very, very curly hair. And my mind was honestly blown. I had never seen that. And, um, you know, my experience growing up hearing, hearing my parents' generation talk was more that dark skin was, they'd call it sunog or burnt, you know, or there was this kind of pressure to, you know, my hair was very coarse growing up. There's this pressure to kind of straighten it. And I think that if I had had that education of an understanding that our indigenous people of the Philippines were more, tended to be darker, that it would have largely shaped how I saw beauty growing up. And it's funny that you say that because I wasn't exposed to a lot of Asian people either growing up. And so when I moved to a larger city, a more diverse city uh, with different people, it came as a shock to me as well. And I may even have perpetuated the lightness is better or the, uh, you know, the fact that I had Asian um, features 
was not a positive thing in my life growing up. It was a negative thing. And so I may have perpetuated that myself in thinking, oh, you know, this, this person who is blonde and blue-eyed with a thin nose and thin lips is much more attractive than me. Um, I don't know how to get over that, though. I, I'm not sure how to overcome that, especially if, if you live in an area which is predominantly white. I think something that um, a couple of you have brought up is this play between desiring acceptance. And um, I think a common problem in, in the quest for liberation is when the oppressed become the oppressors. And um, as we have a tendency to internalize this language of white is better, light is better, um, and wanting to assimilate and um, find acceptance either for self-gain or just because of that internalized racism. Um, how does this um, effect of colorism divide our communities? I think that's what you're talking about as far as um, not knowing how to overcome that and being per perpetuating it ourselves. Um, I think that also leads to these divisions within our communities so that not only do we face external racism, but this internalized racism in the form of colorism. Yeah, I think that's a really big question, but it's a really important one um, because it hits at this systemic idea of whiteness, right? And so the idea of whiteness, and scholar Raka Shome says that, just defining in case anybody, uh, but whiteness is understood as a process constituted by an ensemble of social and material practices in which whites and often non-whites for survival are invested by which they are socialized and through which they are produced. And so this idea of whiteness operating as this mechanism of like power and control. And I think that's where a lot of like this internalized ideas of like what, um, like pitting colorism, pitting um, light-skinned and dark-skinned individuals against one another comes into play. And it all ties back to, Michelle, you had mentioned earlier, like this like colonial Eurocentric ideas, right? It's um, kind of a tool of the dominant, right, in order to continue to oppress and divide the non-dominant communities. Um, and I don't really have an answer of how do we necessarily individually fight against that because it's something that's so deeply ingrained in our history and the ways that we come to know uh, things. Um, but I think, Robert, your point of um, education, just like acknowledging, right, just acknowledging that this is something that we are all learning um, checking our own biases, um, but yeah, I think that whiteness is a tool that really works to divide um, and uh, pit communities of color against one another, and there's a lot of repercussions for that. Um, uh, some of the things I think within like the black community is this idea of darker-skinned individuals being viewed as more criminal. Um, you know, we saw that with like O.J. Simpson, right, and the, the way that he appeared on uh, magazine covers. Um, his skin was darkened on one magazine cover. Um, Beyonce uh, lightening her skin to be more successful. You know, there's just, I think one of the ways that this is perpetuated for uh, all different communities of colors through the media. And then like we become embedded and inundated with those messages and we, you know, just internalize them whether or not we're aware of it. And it's just 
so dangerous. It's just a, it's a really difficult thing, I think, to grapple with and work through. I agree with you because when we talk about communities, you know, when you're talking about the O.J. Simpson case and, you know, even Beyonce and stuff. But um, when I was studying, um, you know, Kendi's book and you read about colorism and then they talk about how, you know, the lighter skin, the lighter the skin, the lighter the sentence. And, you know, when you hear that, like that just really hit me that, wow, there's something wrong with that because the fact that it's not the crime, you know, people are looking at someone's skin and by that determination, they will, you know, either move the needle to a, lo a, a larger sentence, a harder sentence versus not based on the color of skin. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, going what you said, Robert, you know, it's like, how do you work through this? I'm, we're taking the first step in talking about it, sharing our experiences and learning, you know, things that are not in the mainstream or oftentimes not in our textbooks. Um, so it's going to take a lot of us to voice these, you know, inequities um, in not only what we study, what we read, and having the voices that are often not, you know, represented or written about to be shared. Um, and yeah, and I'm so thankful y'all are here because we need educators, you know, to support that because you guys are the ones that hold that ability you know, for the future generations. It's, uh, it's interesting because um, this reminds me of the whole topic of systemic racism and how many people don't even realize that they are perpetuating racism in some way and different skin color. I mean, it's more obvious, I think, in the, the black community when you look back on some famous and successful black people, it's, it's kind of surprising, but most of them are lighter skinned black people. And, um, and this dates back to the 1940s, 1930s. Um, but we, we, many of us, perpetuate this type of racism without even knowing it. Like I said, when I first started talking, I didn't even realize that this was a problem until, until I read the, the assigned reading for this discussion. It was a complete surprise to me. But then when I started to think about it, I realized that yes, this is, this is something that could cause uh, problems for people, darker people, even if, even if we're talking about Asian people. Um, I can see where darker Asian people might be treated differently than lighter colored Asian people. I'm half European, and so it doesn't affect me as much, although in the summertime where I grew up, I grew up on the coast of Maine, in the summertime I always had the darkest tan of anyone, and I thought people were envious of that. My white friends couldn't tan as darkly as I did, so I didn't look at that as being a problem. Uh, for me growing up, but I can see where it could have been um, a problem for someone else. Yeah, I think a major responsibility within the AAPI community is to especially talk to, you know, I think it's very, very heavily ingrained in older generations, I'll speak for myself, and to encourage um, this ceasing of measuring ourself in proximity to whiteness, measuring our success in proximity to whiteness, there's this kind of um, inferring and sometimes very overt, you know, uh, I remember growing up that 
uh, members of my family would not encourage me to date black folks in particular because the, the quality of life wouldn't be as great for them. And I think that it really needs to start there. So um, yeah, this is such a great conversation. It's a great start. And I think we need to get bolder about not perpetuating those cycles. Right. Well, thank you everyone for joining me today. Um, I, beyond colorism affecting beauty standards, um, we clearly, clearly see that it has a lot of effects on, on as Terry is talking about, um, prison sentencing, um, uh, darker, there are studies that show that darker Filipino men um, earn less money than their lighter um, peers. And so um, colorism has very real effects that I think part of this conversation is as a start of addressing it in our communities and um, not trying, leading us to not um, pursue assimilation and acceptance, but to um, to push back against these color, colorist practices and ideas. And so um, thank you, you all, for t joining our discussion today. Um, for more information and more episodes, go to just justconversations.org. And next, we'll be chap discussing chapter 10 on the topic of white. Um, and we hope to see you there. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Farisee. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmidt, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit JustConversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at JustConversate, on Instagram at JustConversaciones, or on Facebook at JustConversate. 